News, notes, and Zola, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, May the 8th. It's show number 24 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great news and notes show for you. We'll talk with Todd Zola, our regular weekly Talk with Todd commentator, about early season contact rates and their potential for changing batting average, setting daily game points expectations by projections and batting order slot, and much more. We also have our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, looking at Zach Cozart, the Marlins' closer situation, and more. And from the American League with Jock Thompson, looking at George Springer's replacement, J.J. Hardy's return, and more. In our regular matchups analysis, Greg Fishwick looks at the Reds' Johnny Cueto at the White Sox' Carlos Rodon. The Twins, Trevor May at the Indians, Danny Salazar, and more weekend matchups. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about what's in a month. Hey, what do you say? Todd Zola is in the house. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday News and Notes edition, our League Watch News reports, Jock Thompson is on deck with players from the American League, and leading off, it's the National League report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Good to be here. Nick, Zach Cozart of Cincinnati has never been thought of as an offensive force in fantasy baseball, but here he is with five home runs and a couple of stolen bases in the young season, and he's got a batting average over 300. Facts and Flukes at BaseballHQ.com looks at performances like this to validate them, that is to assess whether they're for real fact or somewhat uh, unusual a fluke. And Greg Pyron covered Zach Cozart this week. Uh, What does he say about this unusual start for Zach Cozart? Well, you know, Zach Cozart was on a lot of radars a couple of years ago. He hit 27 home runs combined in, in 2012 and 2013, which is not, not bad for a for a shortstop, so it looked like he might turn into something. And then last year, just went all to pieces, batted only 221 and only four homers, and, uh, you know, things didn't look so good. And my guess is, keeper leagues where he was being held, he got dropped and probably didn't get picked up much in this year's, this year's early auctions. But as you said, Zach Cozart is off to a flying start. I mean, you look behind those five home runs, which is already one more than he hit all of last year, we see some very interesting numbers. His power index is up from 55 a year ago to 132 this year. His expected power index is up from 77 to 125. His contact rate has, has been pretty good. It's uh, it stayed right where it normally is, 82, 83, 84%. So he's not hacking in order to do that. Um, and... We're seeing a the, the really interesting thing, I think, with Zach Cozart is a, a, a increase in his batted ball distance that suggests that um, some of this may be real. I mean, the, his batted ball distance, if I can see if I can find that, increased from, from 257 feet in 2014 to 298 feet in 2015. That's a rather large increase and suggests that his current home run output might, output might be somewhat sustainable. So... Zach Cozart is looking very interesting to start the season. And in addition, he's got a bit of speed, a 127, uh, a 127 uh, expected speed index, 116 current speed, so stolen a couple of bases. Here's a guy that could wind up with 20 home runs, 10 stolen bases by the time the year is out. 
And what's really interesting to me in situations like this, Nick, is that this is not an instance where Zach Cozart is doing this for the first time. As you mentioned, in past seasons, he has shown this kind of power, and so it's not a new thing, but a return to something that he's done in the past. Very definitely. And the, the other interesting thing, too, is you go back to 2013 when he hit when he hit 12 home runs. In that year, his ground ball rate was 50%. It's down to 43% this year. His fly ball rate was 32% in 2013. It's up to 36% this year. So showing an increase in that area as well, which certainly suggests that he might be able to keep this thing going. Right now, we're projecting him somewhat pessimistically at BaseballHQ.com. 13 more home runs the rest of the way, uh, just six stolen bases the rest of the way. So he's going to come up a little short of that 2010 uh, mark that you mentioned, uh, 257 batting average overall by the end of the year, despite the 304 start. So... Uh, the analysts at BaseballHQ.com sometimes uh, disagree a little bit, shall we say, on the potential for players, but it's certainly something that you have to look at because the uh, facts and flukes column looks into it in a, in a very disciplined way, and the projections are based on historical patterns and, and, uh, and uh, the, the, the mathematics of it, and sometimes the, the, the twain don't meet, and this is something that could be worth looking at. Uh, Stephen Nickrand, in his April Base Performance Value Leaders Review, of hitters also looked at the Dodgers' Jock Peterson and pointed to some big power skills and high walk rate. Jock Peterson is off to a scorching start with nine home runs, 19 RBIs already. And, you know, this, Jock Peterson is a kind of an interesting hitter. He, he put up the first 30-30 campaign in PCL history last year. Great power-speed combo, but he's also a real true three-outcomes hitter. Uh, had a, a strikeout, a walk, or a home run in more than 50% of his plate appearances. So, Jock Peterson's power is not something we we uh, worry about. The question is, can he sustain a batting average to the point where that that power is is more than uh, just a little bit interesting? At this point, he's hitting 271, but in the past week, five home runs, but only six hits and a 214 batting average. So, Jock Peterson is certainly a very interesting guy. He's going to put up power and speed. Uh, at 23 years old, his first taste of the majors, the pitchers have not adjusted yet, and you know that's going to happen. So the thing to worry about with Jock Peterson is not the power. That's going to be there. It's whether he can keep up his batting average enough to uh, uh, to not be a huge black hole in your lineup. Well, as you said, uh, 271 so far, and we're projecting 247 the rest of the way. And it wasn't that long ago, Nick, uh, both of us will remember that a 247 batting average would be pretty much a disqualifier, even for a guy who was going to push 20, 25 home runs because you just couldn't afford that hit to the batting average. But nowadays... 247 is pretty average, really, and and so if you're expecting, as Baseball HQ projects, to get 16 more home runs and 14 more bags, uh, 54 RBIs and 60 runs scored, that's a $15, $16 value, and the 247 batting average, you go, yeah, I can live with that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, in today's offensive environment, if you get uh, 25 home runs out of a guy and he hits 250, that's pretty good. You know, my uh, looking at, at where a lot of teams are and a lot of hitters are at this point, we're going to see more guys below the Mendoza line than this year than we've than we've seen in the past. I suspect. In uh, playing time tomorrow column, Greg Pyron uh, a few days ago talked about Steve Sishek, the closer in Miami, who has had some pretty good years these last couple of years, but he's off to a rocky start this year. Uh, Steve Sishek had blown a couple of saves to start the season, and the the thing that that's a little bit worrisome, perhaps, about Steve Sishek is that his his um, velocity has been down uh, after. Averaging about 92 miles an hour the past three years on his fastball velocity is down to 90 miles an hour this year. So it, it just makes you worry a little bit when he's blowing saves and that fastball doesn't, doesn't have quite the bite and the kick that he used to. You begin to wonder what's going on. Now, 
the thing to, to remember about Steve Sissig is that a year ago he had the same kind of kind of problem. An 89.6 mile per hour fastball in April was up to 92 in June. So maybe this is just a guy who needs to, whose fastball warms up as the weather warms up, but certainly something to keep an eye on. The If you're a Steve Sissig owner, and maybe even if you're not, you want to keep an eye on A.J. Ramos in the, in the Miami bullpen. Um, A.J. Ramos is a guy who's always shown some good swing and miss kind of stuff, but has had control problems. 4.8 control in 2013, 6.6 control in 2014, walking a whole lot of guys. This year, things are a bit better. His his uh, control is 3.1 so far. His first pitch strike rate is up to 61% from 57% a year ago. Sample size is tiny, but at this point, Ramos is looking like he might, in fact, be able to get that walk rate under control. And if he can do that, then he becomes a really, really interesting guy to look at in terms of uh, uh, in, in terms of his, his potential in that bullpen. Um, right now, Ramos has a 1.13 ERA, 0.75 WHIP, 20 strikeouts and only five walks, and I'll take that. Yeah, I'll take it too. Now the question is whether the Marlins management uh, is looking at this situation and saying it's time to make a switch and. I, I think that it makes sense for them in the near term to give Ciszek a, a little bit of rope before uh, before they kind of uh, pull him out of the role and turn it over to A.J. Ramos, who uh, has does not have the same track record. I mean, Ciszek in the last couple of years, 34 saves, 39 saves. His base performance value is 126, 151, and that's getting way up there for a base performance value. This year, as you mentioned, it's way down to a 62 base performance value. He's had some struggles with the, uh, with the skill. But overall, this is a, this is a, a pitcher who's done it, and managers are usually very reluctant to change horses in the middle of the stream to go from a, a proven closer to somebody who seems to be doing well but hasn't pitched in the role. And I know at BaseballHQ.com, Nick, we always say, don't buy the role, buy the skills. But I think when you're talking about closers, that might not be as realistic as we'd like it to be. Yeah, you know, I think you're you're absolutely right. I mean, Sissick's going to have a whole lot of rope. Uh, I think this is a case where you might just want to back him up. If you're a Sissick owner, back him up with Ramos. Um, because, and Ramos, if he keeps pitching the way he is, he's going to have some value anyway. Right. Uh, even if, as long as he keeps those walks under control, he'll have plenty of value uh, even if he's not closing. So uh, kind of a guy to tuck away if you're a Sissick owner. Uh, if you begin to hear that Sissick is continuing to blow saves, uh, and, and as we said, he'll have a lot of rope in order to do that, especially uh, if the Marlins are not contending right away. Just keep an eye on A.J. Ramos. I guess that would be my my uh, bottom line here. Yeah, it wouldn't be a bad guy to stash away, but right now uh, BaseballHQ.com is projecting Sishek to hold the role, uh, amass 31 more saves the rest of the way. going to be a $23, $24 player in 5x5 five five, and a little higher than that in 4x4 four four because of the increased importance of saves, of course. Not as many strikeouts as the elite closers, but a 285-108 line combination in the decimals in the projection is pretty good. And if Steve Sishek's owner in your league, I think this might be the opportunity, Nick, is getting a little bit nervous, then this might be the time to make an offer on Steve Sishek. You might be able to get him on the cheap. Yeah, right now he's probably at a, he's at a good uh, a good kind of buy low target, especially with his ERA at seven point seven one and one point three nine WHIP. That's a good time to try to pry him away from uh, 
from his current owner. And speaking of potential closers, uh, replacements, Aaron Barrett in Washington was really good in 2014, Nick, and uh, unfortunately he walked a few two guys. If he can straighten that out, says Matt Cederholm in the Market Pulse column, he could be the guy who replaces Drew Storen if Storen becomes ineffective or gets hurt. Yeah, very definitely. I mean, uh, Barrett's the kind of guy who's, again, a, a, a sort of a, a backup. He's the problem last year, as you said, was uh, was control issues, and if he gets that, uh, reins that in, then uh, he's going to be very, very good. At 4.4 control a year ago, 1.5 control so far this year, uh, showing a, a, an increase in his first pitch strike rate from 54 in 2014 to 70 this year. Um, so Barrett's a guy who, who looks at, at in age 27, so a good year for a step up, uh, looks to be taking a real step forward. Uh, and, and someone to keep in mind if, uh, if Drew Storen has problems, or maybe even if he doesn't, someone that could, uh, could actually help your roster. And Casey Jansen, of course, is still out of the lineup with an injury. So in the meantime, as you say, not a bad guy to have on your roster, especially in a, in a, a National League-only league, because uh, you, you do need to have those middle relievers, and he's going to pile up a few strikeouts around 70 or so the rest of the way, which is not bad for a relief pitcher. He'll vulture a few wins, get a save here and there on a, you know, one of those situations where the closer has pitched three consecutive nights or something like that, and could be around a $10 value, and it probably won't cost you that. No, probably not. I mean, you're right. He's the guy that's going to bring you $10 in value. You might give him for a buck or two. Nick, thanks very much for helping us out again this week. We'll talk to you again uh, in uh, seven days. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols writes pitcher matchup reports for BaseballHQ.com, and he's our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now it's over to the American League, and from the windy city of Chicago, it's BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. You know, PD, I'm, I'm eating good food, uh, and I'm watching some baseball. Actually, I'm fortunate. My wife is on a conference here, and uh, I'm tagging along, but a uh, uh, terrific place to be. I forgot uh, how much fun Chicago was. I, I love Chicago myself. I've enjoyed every minute I've spent there, and uh, especially if you get a chance to get out to Wrigley Field and to uh, to uh, U.S. Cellular, watch a couple of games, nothing better. Uh, we're not going to start in Chicago, but we are going to start in Houston, where George Springer has been sent to the seven-day DL with a concussion, and the Astros have recalled Preston Tucker from the minors to replace him. Jock, in your playing time tomorrow space earlier in the week, you actually suggested Tucker might be getting a call-up anyway, so good for you. What are you seeing here with uh, Preston Tucker? Well, this is actually Tucker's MLB debut, and, and, and it's kind of interesting because I I thought he was the logical person to get a call-up, even though he wasn't on the 40-man roster. And, and he's an interesting guy, not just because of his... Uh, 300 batting average and uh, league leading 10 home runs in the Pacific Coast League. You know, we've seen plenty of players do this in that league. But he's got better plate skills than even some of the Astros that are, that were currently on the roster. Uh, um, he's, he's got a, a 9, 10% uh, career uh, walk rate in the minors and his contact rate is over 80%. And this is the kind of thing that Houston really needs in their, their, their offense. Uh, a lot of observers have, have jumped on this Houston bandwagon early in the year with the fast start, suggesting some of us were wrong in our criticisms of that swing and miss uh, lineup, how it was working. But now we've seen the offense cool down a tad since uh, Jed Lowry's injury. Tucker is a guy, particularly since he can DH and play first base and left field from the left side uh, versus uh, the right-handed hitting uh, Chris Carter and uh, Evan Gattis, he may help them. He can help them in the short term, it certainly appears obvious, but sooner or later Springer's going to come back. What kind of staying power does Preston Tucker have to stay in the lineup, maybe for the balance of the season, and do well? 
Well, here's an intriguing tell. The, the, the very first game he was promoted, they actually started him against a left-hander, uh, Hector Santiago, the Angels, and Tucker has always hit left-handers pretty well. Um, he didn't get a hit against Santiago, but he did work a walk, and then he got an RBI single in the ninth inning against uh, closer Houston Street. I think he has a chance to stick and play at least part-time against right-handed pitching, and that actually after Springer returns, Robbie Grossman is the more likely to motion. Grossman, uh, he's, his contact rate is at 70%. He's producing no power, and he's done this repeatedly. Uh, all of this is in 44 at-bats, but, but Grossman is showing no signs of improving. If Tucker hits in the interim, I think he's going to stick. The Baltimore Orioles look ready to finally get J.J. Hardy back from the DL after a shoulder injury and quite a lengthy rehab. Matt Dodge discussed this at BaseballHQ.com. What does the whole situation look like with J.J. Hardy? Well, like Matt mentioned, uh, Baltimore shortstops have hit about 200 uh, uh, in 2015, and Hardy's projections are a little better than that. But I think as you and I both know, um, last year Hardy had a severe power outage. I think he hit nine homers and over 500 at-bats. It's not used to what we're seeing. And maybe the shoulder had something to do with it. But we have to call into question where he's going from here. Um, Everett Cabrera hasn't been that good. Uh, he's been uh, he's going on the DL with Hardy coming back. So that's an interesting situation in uh, in Baltimore right now. Uh, Ray Navarro hangs on to the utility role for the time being because they're also waiting for Steve Pierce to get better from a stomach virus. Uh, how do you like Steve Pierce? Just briefly. Yeah, Pierce has been at second base. Uh, I don't think we know much about uh, enough about Pierce's defense at second. I can't believe that's going to last unless he's going to going to surprise us and maybe pull pull what Ryan Rayburn pulled a few years ago. Um, obviously, he's getting close to five game eligibility, but uh, I mean that's that's something you know. Wow, I guess we should watch, but uh, who knows what kind of defense he's going to play over there. If Hardy struggles again or gets re injured, we've got Cabrera on the DL jock. Uh, is there anybody else in that Baltimore lineup that fantasy owners might be able to hedge a bet on J.J. Hardy? Yeah, it's kind of interesting because I have Ryan Flaherty uh, reserved in uh, in one of my keeper leagues. And he's no great shakes. Uh, obviously, uh, he's, he's uh, underperformed his expected batting average for two straight years. But this is a guy who actually profiles as a 250 hitter with some pop in Camden Yards. And before Flaherty went on the DL, uh, he started fairly well in a small sample. Uh, lots of hard contact. His patience is up. He still has the power. And he already qualifies at second base, shortstop, and third base. Uh, he's no slam dunk, but this is a guy who might, might just just have something to, more than he's shown, something to offer in, in deeper leagues. I like the added eligibility. It's so valuable in deep leagues to be able to move a guy within your roster. It gives you a lot of flexibility hitting that very thin free agent pool. Uh, Down in Oakland, the uh, A's have called up speedy Billy Burns. They tried him uh, late last year, and he didn't do that well. He's getting a shot now as an everyday player again, and he's started off a little stronger. You covered this story in Playing Time tomorrow this past week. What's going on in Oakland, and what is the outlook for Billy Burns? Well, Burns was called up to replace Cody Ross after the A's ended that experiment and officially designated uh, Ross for assignment. This all happened both as Craig Gentry and Sam Fold were just going through horrible stretches at the plate. Uh, I think Gentry was uh, two for 30 uh, for the year. And and with Coco Chris scheduled to return from the DA within uh, 10 days. So Burns had limited time to produce, but he actually has done fairly well. He's He's been eight for 27. He has a couple stolen bases, just one walk. But as most fantasy owners know, this is a guy who can run. He was he was uh, 54 stolen bases in 60 attempts in 2014 between Double A AA and Triple A. 
Um, so interestingly enough, CRISP is back and, and the A's have actually optioned Gentry probably due to, to Burns' performance. And of course, this is one real interesting aspect of the A's young position uh, flexible roster in that not only are they cheap, but many of them still have options remaining and can, can thus shuttle back and forth from AAA depending on the roster needs. And I'm, and I'm pretty sure the A's consider this when they acquire young players like Gentry and Burns who, who began in other organizations. I think you're right about that. And uh, as we know, Billy Bean and his front office team are always looking for some way to get an edge. And for a while, it was just the money ball thing with figuring out who wasn't being valued and everybody kind of cut up with that. And then they moved forward to this idea of having added depth, especially at starting pitchers. I think last year they had six or seven starting pitchers that they kind of rolled around, assuming that there was going to be injuries. And now it looks like they're they're approaching the entire idea of roster construction, saying instead of having a 25-man roster, let's use the 40 and use all 40 spots on it to bring guys in and out, up and down, as we need them, as times change, and of course to deal with these injuries. Yeah, and this is something fantasy owners need to watch because if you're, it, it basically comes down to if you're performing, you're going to play, and if not, you're going to get sent down. It can happen uh, in a very small sample, so it creates it havoc for fantasy owners, particularly inattentive ones. But uh, it's it's definitely interesting. And uh, it also means that even if you're a really attentive owner, if the A's seem to be doing this on a regular basis, not that there's much we can do about it now, but certainly it's something you want to keep in the back of your mind for next year when the auction or draft rolls around, that there may be playing time limitations on a lot of guys on the A's roster because of this willingness of their organization to move guys in and out very rapidly. Yeah, and uh, and and Billy Burns is a is a good example of that. I mean, I I think he's he's potentially a guy who could steal twenty to thirty bases depending on how long he lasts in his full time role. I'm still pretty skeptical about whether he can he can last long term either throughout the entire season or several seasons in a row. I still think he's a fourth outfielder type. He doesn't have enough power uh, to, uh, to 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 basically stay in the lineup. But over short stretches, and let's face it, the MLB, the major league season is, is six months long. He can help a fantasy roster. Yes, he could, as long as it's uh, one-dimensional stolen base support that you're looking for. Otherwise, I don't think there's a lot of there there. Uh, maybe a little batting average, but even at that, he's he doesn't hit the ball hard enough to generate the kind of batting average you want. We always think that hitting a ball hard is primarily useful for hitting a ball far, but also the ability to hit a lot of line drives hard means you get on base, you help your batting average, you get more opportunities to steal and so forth. And I think where Billy Burns is concerned, that ability to hit the ball consistently with some smack is a little bit lacking. Yeah, Billy Burns is going to have to have a lot of hit rate luck to stay in the lineup. So uh, it'll be an interesting uh, interesting situation to see what he does. And I'll be watching to see how much he bunts. If they can teach him to do that, he could get a hit a week and end up over 300. Uh, also in your playing time tomorrow, Space Jock, you talked about the Angels catching debacle. And there's been some activity on that front. What's going on behind the plate in Anaheim? Well, first off, as most people know, the Angels' offense has just been dreadful all season long, particularly at the end. And Chris Iannetta has been one of the black holes. He's he's hitting less than 100 uh, despite playing 75% of the time up till now. And most of this isn't really hit rate related. Uh, his contact rate has always been uh, a little bit uh, on the edge, and it's fallen through the floor. It's down in the low 60s. He looks lost. He's not making. Uh, he's not only not making much contact. He's not hitting the ball hard when he does. Um, and the guy who paid the price for Ionetta's uh, 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 problems has been Drew Butera, 
who was DFA. Now, Buterian himself was is also has also uh, batting average problems. He's never been much of an offensive catcher. But you can't have two of those on on your roster. And Ionetta was the one with the salary. Uh, Butera was DFA, and, and rookie Carlos Perez was uh, was brought up to make his MLB debut. And he's an interesting guy in that he he has a career contact rate of 83 percent in the minors, so he's a lot different than Ionetta or uh, or Butera. And he also has a decent nine ten percent walk rate. I happened to see Carlos Perez in his uh, debut game, and he hit a walk-off home run, so that'll get him on the good side of the manager, at least temporarily. What chance is there that he actually takes significant playing time away from Ionetta? In other words, should we be looking at grabbing him out of the free agent pool if he's still there? Perhaps in deep leagues, and, and maybe if you know, own Ionetta. The, the problem with Perez is that we, we don't know how much power he has. Uh, he's never shown much power in the, in the minors. He's only 24 years old, so who knows? I mean, the way catchers grow, he might show a little more in the majors. Power is not his forte, uh, but certainly contact is. And, and in that regard, uh, if he gets a little hit rate luck, uh, who knows? Um, I, I would take him... Uh, over Ionetta over the for the long term future because I don't see Ionetta getting any better than he was last year, which was uh, a, 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 basically a a, a, a a replacement value catcher, maybe five six dollars above it. Um, and if that's your career year, I mean, what what upside do you have when you turn thirty two and your contact rate falls through the through the floor? Yeah, that you make an excellent point. Uh, we expect catchers to develop their offense a little later than other players because of the demands defensively of the position. But at 32 years old, Ionetta should be at that spot now, and it doesn't sound like he is. Uh, finally, Jock, let's talk about the Twins. We hardly ever do. They have placed Oswaldo Arcia, big power hitting outfielder, on the disabled list and called up Eddie Rosario, who was pretty impressive in the Arizona Fall League when we were there for First Pitch Arizona. How does uh, Eddie Rosario look? for the immediate and long-term future. Yeah, I think both for the Twins and, and for fantasy owners, uh, Rosario is kind of a maddening guy. He used to be considered a uh, one of the Twins' premier prospects, and he's been pretty much hot and cold throughout his minor league career. Uh, he was he had been suspended for uh, um, recreational drug use for a little while. Um, he um, he struggled when he came back after his suspension last year in Double A. Uh, pitch selection has always been his biggest issue, and there's a question as to how much power he's going to have. But he he's shown flashes of power. He he's he's got a a good line drive swing. You and I saw that in the Arizona Fall League last year, uh, where he's one of the their their leading hitters. Um, and actually, the Twins were thinking about keeping him uh, this spring. Uh, but they decided he needed more seasoning. It was probably the right move. So Arcia will come back at some point. Is there any chance Eddie Rosario stays on the Twins roster when Arcia resumes his role? Yeah, there really is because the Twins have a center field problem. And Jordan Schaefer, believe it or not, the thing that has fallen off on Jordan Schaefer's game, which none of us expected, is his stolen bases. I think he only has one stolen base all year. He's been caught three times. This is something he used to be good at, and he needs to rebound. Um if Schaefer can't rebound, uh, it's clear that the, that the Twins have lost um, all kinds of uh, confidence in uh, Aaron Hicks, once another prize rookie. Um, personally, I think Rosario needs a bit more seasoning. But if he hits, he's going to play. Um, so, it, yeah, I mean, that's one of those wait and see. If you perform, you'll stay. Might be a good grab for keeper dynasty formats then. Uh, Eddie Rosario is certainly not going to be a great 
fantasy baseball player, but he could be an asset. Uh, staying in Minnesota, BaseballHQ.com uh, minor leagues analyst Chris Blessing wrote a first-hand account of Minnesota minor leaguers, uh, the pitcher Juan Barrios, as well as potential offensive stars Byron Buxton and Miguel Sano. The two hitters in particular are trying to return from injuries that really uh, dogged them all of last year. Minnesota fans and fantasy owners have been drooling over Buxton and Sano for quite a while also. So what does Chris Blessing say about these two talented young players, and how do they look to you? Well, the thing we got to remember about both these guys, while Sano was out all year last year with Tommy John surgery, and, and we all know about Buxton's uh, two, three different injuries uh, last year, both are still just 21 years old. And and Buxton has really begun to take off. Up, He's hit 381 in his last 42 at-bats um, for the year, and just over 100 at-bats. He's hitting 270 after a real slow start, uh, three home runs, seven stolen bases. This is a guy who is still at the top of the minor league prospect list right now, particularly with Chris Bryant in the majors, and he deserves to be. Sano has started a little slower. He, he's only hitting 181, but um, he was never going to be a high hour, uh, I'm sorry, a high batting average guy to begin with. Uh, he looks more like a 260, 270 guy at best. He's still hitting for power. He's got five home runs in his first 85 at bats, and he's still showing very good patience. Um, once he once he gets his feet on the ground, I think he's going to hit more home runs. Sano is a 30 to 40 home run guy. He's got power that might just be a half a tick under Bryant's. I like both these guys. If they can stay healthy, they're both going to be monsters. Chris thinks they're not going to be up until 2016. I kind of agree with him. Um, but it all depends on their talent. Both both Buxton and Sano have the uh, the talent to push the issue. And if Minnesota wants to draw some fans at the end of the year, they could uh, they could tempt them back in August and September with call ups. But uh, obviously, they're going to have to perform and stay healthy. Well, you know what? I can't see the Twins calling up these two guys, starting their service clocks early just to draw a few fans. The uh, financial ramifications of doing that are so great at the tail end of the. Uh, two or three year period where they're uh, under cost control, I can't see them wanting to pick up a few hundred thousand dollars in extra ticket sales and give up all those millions in free agency down the road. You know, when I read Chris Blessing's analysis, I have Miguel Sano in my American League only, and uh, what struck me about his analysis was when he said that uh, Sano's power is like Giancarlo Stanton. Yeah, and and he um, he that's exactly how how uh, most scouts and analysts were looking at Sano before he went down, and Sano lost an entire year for Tommy John surgery, so uh, out of sight, out of mind for a lot of people. But 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 this guy has big time power, so um, uh, definitely if uh, if he can stay healthy, he's he's going to have a major league career. And he's a, a plus defender. I didn't realize that about him, but again, uh, based on Chris Blessing's analysis that was at BaseballHQ.com, he says he's a really good fielder. He makes good plays. He's got a great arm, pretty good footwork for a big guy. So uh, a lot of times it's your glove that gets you there and your bat that keeps you there. It sounds like uh, with both Buxton and Sano, we could be looking at guys with good gloves and good bats and good long-term futures. Uh, Jock, thanks very much for talking with us. We'll catch up with you again in a week's time. Sounds good, PD. Thanks. And enjoy the baseball in Chicago. Uh, Jock Thompson is the director of news and analysis at BaseballHQ.com, and he covers the American League here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, it's our regular Talk with Todd. Todd Zola coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. Jackson with four runs batted in. Sends a fly ball to center field and deep. That's going to be way back, and that's going to be gone. Reggie Jackson is hitting his third home run of the game. Baseball HQ Radio.
And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. BaseballHQ.com is working 24-7 to give you everything you need to succeed. Like these features, we have a new item, the GM's office. Co-general managers Brent Hershey and Ray Murphy of BaseballHQ.com discuss various topics about the site, the industry, fantasy baseball opinion, and whatever other scuttlebutt they hear in the hallways. In the eyes have it, minor league coverage, Chris Blessing goes on the road to scout three top twins prospects live and up close, pitcher Juan Berrios, outfielder Byron Buxton, and third baseman Miguel Sano. And in playing time today, HQ analysts assess the latest news from MLB roster moves, like the return of J.J. Hardy, the DLing of George Springer and Andrew Lambeau, and more. BaseballHQ.com updates its content every day across a wide range of great information and tools, like our Buyer's Guide Skills Assessment Columns, Performance Validation in Facts and Flukes, Roster Changes in Playing Time Today and Tomorrow, Daily Matchups, Team Coverage, Minor League Scouting, as well as our projections and other roster management tools you can use to help you dominate your league. And it's only at the website with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners, BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for our regular weekly talk with Todd, and it's a pleasure to be joined by Todd Zola, contributor to BaseballHQ.com, Chandler Park, ESPN, Fantasy Alarm, Masters Ball, and others. Todd, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Really good to be back, Patrick. At FantasyAlarm.com, where you write regularly, you have a series called Category Impact, looking at how to assess the categories during the year, especially, and most recently you were looked at batting average and especially the potential for hitters to sustain a hot or cold start in batting average based on contact rate. How did this work? Yeah, this is a uh, sort of an analytic procedure that I've been using for the past couple of years based upon... I think some pretty cool studies that are mainly posted at Fangraphs and, and Baseball Prospectus about when a stat in season stabilizes, the sample it takes for various and sundry stats to stabilize. And even by stabilize, it's really not stable. Their definition of stable is there's a 50% chance that in season that stat is now real. And when I first started looking at this uh, sort of studies, I was taken aghast by how quickly contact rate or, you know, strikeout rate, however you want to look at it, stabilizes or, you know, the new strikeout rate the player is, is working at that year is, can, can be considered real. It, so one of the studies, it's, it's 60 plate appearances, which is basically one month. You know, we talk about, you know, it's not the sample's too small to make this assumption or make that assumption, but according to the study, one month is enough to judge if a player is striking out more or less than what we expected going in. And to me, that's fairly significant because, you know, the, the better contact you rate, other things feed off of that. You, you'll get a couple more home runs, your productions, your steals, everything. So based upon that one stat, I think a lot revolves around it. And it's not definite that the player is going to be better or worse. It's still only a 50% chance. But while everybody else is practicing excruciating patience, as they say, if you feel that if you, if you, if you buy into the study, it gives you a chance to get a heads up, a head start on some players to target and other players to get rid of. So I, I kind of, I like it. It's, it's been controversial. I, I, some players that have come up using this, uh, I've taken a lot of heat for one way or another, but, um, back testing it a bit, it seems to be wrong more than, uh, sorry, right more than wrong. So that's what it is. It's managing probabilities, and I'll you know I'll continue to uh, one month into the season post this column. 
Uh, Todd, you mentioned that the threshold for this change was 60 plate appearances, and then you mentioned something about a month. Uh, 60 plate appearances, uh, uh, a month's worth of plate appearances is closer to 100, isn't it? Yeah, actually, I, as I was saying that, I, I realized in my head I was mis- misstating. I usually go a month to give a little bit extra cushion to sort of push it past the 50-50 mark. Uh, so in my in my head, I just have a month. Uh, but yeah, which is even worse, you know, 60 is, 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 you know, it could be a matter of weeks. Right. If you get, you know, five a game, you can get 35 in, in one week. So it, it's three weeks is, is all it takes, which is really bizarre when you feel, when you realize within three weeks, you're seeing, you could be seeing the same pitchers twice. You're really not seeing a huge sample across section of the league. So, which is what really, you know, absolutely blew my mind about this entire study was that, it's 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 skilled the skill is is stable after having seen so few different pitchers but you know i come from a scientific background and you know the results are the results so you know it's kind of a it's one of those things where you gotta do you trust your intuition or do you trust the data and where i come from i trust the data is there some point at which the trend actually becomes the baseline? So if if a, a player came into the year with a 25% strikeout rate and after 60 at-bats he's got it down in the new year to to 20%, we start saying, well, now there's a, a better than likely chance that this is this is becoming his new norm. At some point does it become his new norm? I think it's I think the the best analogy and I don't know the exact point because it has to do with the math. It's one of those things where you you know, you get halfway close to the wall and you get half of halfway close to the wall and half of halfway. You never actually get to the wall, but at some point the incremental, you know, steps that you're taking are so small that you might as well just consider yourself at the wall. Right. I don't know how many exactly when, and I probably should do a little more research into it. But like I said, the reason I haven't is because even if I get the number, there's still so much noise associated with production that you know it, it, besides the fact that the, the the further you get into the season you know you're talking with a smaller sample size of what's left right so you know the noise of what's you know it, at, at one month it's real but you know in one month anything can happen or sorry at five months it's real but you know in one month you know who knows what happens either uh just be, just because you know the ex- it just it's not set in stone it's an expectation so um I uh, I don't know the exact answer. It's something that at some point maybe one once all my other studies are done, I'll I'll take a look at. But uh, I think it's interesting, and and I think as we collect more data and fine tune contact, we might be able to find an internal metric that's that might hone it a little bit quicker. You broke the list uh, in your column of 2015 players on the positive side of this, that is their contact rates have risen, they're striking out less often, and you broke the list down into head of the class, batting average boosters, and moderate gainers. So maybe we'll get one name off each list and you can explain why he's on that list, what thresholds he's reached. Let's start with the guy from the head of the class. What I did was I looked at their percentage this year strikeout percent this year compared to their three-year average and my filter was any player that's had a thousand a total of thousand plate appearances over the past three years i got their three-year strikeout percentage and then compared it to what's going on this year using a 90 or 95 as the i think 90 is my plate appearance cutoff to be you know judged against their their average for this year uh and then i just the percentage difference 
and I just ranked them by percentage difference. So the head of the class had the biggest percentage differences from their history. And even, yeah, we'll just start with number one and then Dalton Simmons, who who we all love to pick it in the field, and we love watching the, the highlight reel plays he makes. But the guy is making a much better con not much. Well, he started at 9%. He's down to 4%. So, you know, is he going to go... What basically this is saying is he's going to even be better than 9%. Um, he's hitting second in the order, which... You know, it's not going to help his batting average, but it's going to get him more chances, and it's going to increase his runs and RBIs. So if they keep him second in the order, and he has a contact rate even better than nine percent, you know, here's a guy that's going to knock in some runs and score some runs, and he wasn't expected to do that much to begin with because it was Atlanta, but incrementally, you know, the cost to get him is, is probably not that much if if his owner, you know, it's just in Dalton Simmons, you could you know you could add on ten or fifteen more runs and RBIs. Than, uh, than expected by acquiring him at this point. So he's a guy I really, uh, I'd really be shooting to look for in, in, in NL only or even, even a bottom end, bottom end middle infielder in a mixed league. I think Simmons could help somebody. I like those guys who hit second, and this is not based on research or based on statistics. It's based on watching baseball for a long time. The second place hitter gets a lot of, subtle advantages in getting hits on hit and runs and because he sees more fastballs when there's the leadoff hitter who we presume is a base stealer gets on base uh, and is a threat to go then there's going to be more pitch outs which puts the uh, pitcher behind there's going to be more concern about getting the ball in there quickly which means slide stepping and other things that restrict the pitcher's ability to pitch his best and of course he's probably going to see more fastballs and the other aspect is the infield will play double play depth on him, right? Which you know he might hit into a couple more double plays, but it also opens up a couple more holes, especially if the first baseman's holding the runner on and he can pull it to the right side. And uh, I don't know how many second base hitters, place hitters, would see the shift, but if there's runners on base, you're not going to shift as much. So, in uh, it, and we we can talk about it a little bit later if you want, but there's a DFS implication too as far as how many points a second-place hitter will will get for DFS, and I did a little study on that, which may uh, which may back up your intuition pretty well. Okay, we'll talk about that in a second. Meanwhile, uh, the second tier of guys who've improved their strikeout rate, perhaps not quite as much as the head of the class players, is called batting average boosters. Who's an example of that? The guy I'll like to pick out is uh, Anthony Rizzo, uh, mainly because I kind of went out on a limb in January and picked him number seven in the FSTA draft, uh, thinking that he has in, in a point of his career where he's starting to show some improvements in some skills. And well, I mean, like I said, you believe the numbers or you don't. This study is showing that he's making better contact. It went from 17.9, which in today's day and age for a power hitter, 18% strikeout rate isn't all that bad, but he's brought it all the way down to 13%, 12.5%. If he maintains that and gets the power stroke going, I may have my, you know, I may have a seventh, uh, I may not have been so silly for taking him seventh overall. So at least to this point of the season, I'm very happy uh, that I've got a couple shares of Anthony Rizzo. And he's, he's at this. Yeah, it's it's interesting. This list, Andrew jo- Adam Jones is on this list as well, and you know the the strike against Adam Jones has been how can he sustain those numbers with that horrible walk rate and a pretty high contact rate? Well, he's saying, well, you know what, guys, I'll just strike out less times, and that's well, I'm not sure he said that, but uh, <laughs> that's what he's doing. 
So if you were if you're concerned that one of these years Adam Jones is just going to fall off the cliff because he can't continue to defy that the, you know his horrible plate patience, it's probably not going to be this year because according to this study, the man's going to strike out fewer times than normal. What I noticed about a lot of the guys on all the lists, but especially in this third category, moderate gainers, is you have some pretty seasoned veterans, the kind of guys you'd think, geez, uh, if, if anybody's going to have a well-established career-level strikeout rate that's not prone to movement, it's going to be a guy like Matt Kemp or Prince Fielder. But there's Kemp, Fielder, Adrian Beltre is on the list, of, this third list of moderate gainers. Evan Longoria's been around a while. Buster Posey's no, no spring chicken. Yeah, Andrew McCutcheon. You've got a lot of moderate gainers on here that might surprise surprise people they're not that much different than their history they're different and if we're looking for an edge an edge is an edge it is an edge but you know you mentioned Kemp his career is 24 percent and he's at 19 percent here so you know it's, it's close to a 20 percent increase you know when you actually break down the numbers and how many fewer strikeouts that actually is I mean it's fewer and fewer is better but uh you know it also means that it's because it's a fifty percent chance that it's real. They're, you know, they're, the 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 change isn't that different. You know, the same with Posey. It's he he was already at thirteen percent. I mean, how much better can he get? Well, he's at eleven percent. It's sixteen percent better. It's better. It made the list. My filter was fifteen percent. Uh, but you know, when you then plug this back into your spreadsheet to figure out exactly how much better it's going to be. It's better, you know, it's 260 to 265 is for a batting average, something like that. You know, maybe another home run and a couple more, you know, hits and, and, and RBIs. But, you know, Prince Fielder's on the list, which is good to see just because coming back from, uh, coming back from the injury and, 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 and Lucas Dude is on the list and was last year a fluke or not. Well, I don't know, but his power, you know, I don't know if his power will sustain, but he's striking out fewer times, which bodes well. Um, Andrew McCutcheon's on this particular list, and we know, you know, is he running? He stole his first base last night, but then all he did was make it 11 straight successful steals off of Anthony DiScalfani. So was it that McCutcheon's back again, or is that DiScalfani just isn't very good at, at holding on base runners? I don't know. Um, I, I don't put as much credence, not so much credence. I don't get overly goofy. I got to get Evan Longoria because he's striking out fewer times. Uh, he, I'm happy that he's striking out fewer times, but I don't know that he's my primary target. I'd much rather trade for Rizzo uh, than than Longoria, just because eh, you know 16% is nice, but it's it doesn't move the needle that much. The noise around p- production could easily mask that. At the same time, though, if it's true, uh, even a 3% gain in say 650 plate appearances is close to 20 non-strikeouts per plate appearance and as you said if you don't strike out there's a greater chance something good can happen you can ground out but push a guy in from third on a ground ball you can hit a sacrifice fly you can get on base by an error putting the ball in play is just better than not putting the ball in play right you sorry so let's work with that 20 plate appearances so you know you have 300 average on balls in play and you now have six more hits Maybe one of those six hits is a home run, you know, but, uh, you know, within those six hits, you're bound to knock in a round. You're bound to score a couple more times. You're bound to steal another couple times. So it just gives you six more opportunities. Doesn't seem like much, but, you know, it, on the, this is what we're looking for, which it, fantasy baseball is all about probabilities. And what we need to do is manage the probabilities. Right. So all this is, it just gives another data point to manage. 
and especially in rotisserie style, oftentimes the uh, what you're managing is at the margins where you're looking for what seems like an inconsequential two extra RBIs or three extra runs scored because of the category setup that can earn you a couple of points depending on how tightly packed the category is. Right. Yeah. And, and you know what you're looking for is to be right more than you're wrong. And you know we hear all the time buy high, sell low, and this and that and the other thing. But you know, to me, it just gives a li- it frames it a little bit. It gives you a little more. It gives something tangible to base that decision on. Uh, you know, these are guys. That if I have them on my team, I'm not necessarily look. I'm not. I'm not sorry. I'm not looking to get rid of them. If someone wants one of these players, they're going to have to pay. Now, I didn't mention him, but a guy like you know, another thing I like to do. Kyle Seager was in the middle pack. He's striking out fewer times, but he's got a really bad batting average on balls in play. I mean, I think everybody expects that batting average and balls in play to get better, but I'm saying that once that does correct, he's going to be even better than you think he's going to be because all you're doing is correcting for the batting average and balls in play, whereas I'm, not you, but you understood, yeah, yeah. Pat, you know, <laughs> the, uh, you know, the, the person I'm dealing with isn't considering that once his batting average and balls in play stabilized, normalizes, he's going to be even be better than what we thought. Instead of the 265 hitter that we expected, I think he's a 275 hitter this year. So, you know, I want, you know, I'm going to hopefully only have to pay you for a 265 hitter. But in my mind, you know, in return in the trade, I'm getting a 275 hitter. So, you know, to me, it helps frame deals or, or, or give me some targets uh, to look at, you know, what's the slow start? Well, everybody's looking at betting average and balls in play and ignoring the fact that he's striking out uh, fewer times. And the flip side of that, of course, is if a fellow has uh, some upside as far as his strikeout rate is concerned, could be offset by an unusually high batting average on balls and play, which is something you'd have to look at. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Todd Zola, talking with Todd on a Friday edition. And Todd, uh, in the daily fantasy space, I noticed that you won a free entry in uh, into the 2016 NFBC tournament by winning a tournament on FanDuel. How does that work, and how did you do it? Well, yeah, the NFBC has a has an agreement, not an agreement, an, an arrangement with FanDuel where every Tuesday night there's a a contest, you know, regular old you know FanDuel contest. That initially it's open to NFBC participants. You need to go to the NFBC uh, forum message forum, and the link to the contest will be posted. And I also believe they send it out in their newsletters. And if you're in, if you're in an NFBC league. It's on the message board of your, of your league, of each of the league. And the link is provided and it's intended, you know, for those that want to play in the NFBC and win a free entry. It's $25 to get in. It's, it's, it's a little bit pricey, but, you know, the winning, if you win, you get a free $1,600 entry. So, you know, you gotta, you know, if you, you gotta pay a little money if you want to get more money back. So they do this every Tuesday night. And I actually, I want it, I, they do it every week. I happen to win one last year and, and, uh, this is, I think, the third or fourth week they're doing it this year. And I, uh, got a little bit lucky on Tuesday night and took it down. So, uh, the NFBC is going to have me around one more year. I, uh, I think there were 91 participants and, well, I was at the top of the list. And how, what was the secret of your success insofar as winning that particular Tuesday night contest? If you ask anybody that has a, a good night, 
you know, a combination of making a couple smart picks and, and having a little luck involved too. Uh, this was Tuesday night. Uh, this is the night that Shelby Miller went out and threw a complete game. And I, you know, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I, you know, my little black box said Shelby Miller is going to throw a complete game. But it did say that he had a really, really good matchup at home. Turner Field's a very good, fee- a very good park. Uh, I, I, off the top of my head, don't remember the, the opponent. I mean, I think it might have been the Phillies and who, you know, are the, the worst hitting team in the league right now. So it was a pretty decent matchup. I like to look for a guy that I expect to go seven innings and get six or seven strikeouts. I sort of use my rule of thumb of 13, that I want a total of 13 combination strikeouts plus innings from the player, so he can go six innings with seven Ks or seven plus six, whatever it might be, and Miller fit the criteria that evening. Um, the price was right, and and in a tournament, uh, you, you you there's a lot of different ways to do it. I like to... I don't like to go down to the very bottom and take that shot at the at the complete dart throw, but I don't know that I want to use the pitcher that everybody else is going to use either. I want to differentiate myself a little bit. It might be different in a cash game, like we talk about for Tout Daily. Um, well, actually, no, not for Tout Daily. Tout Daily is just similar to this. So the same way in the Tout Daily, where I want a pitcher that's going to differentiate himself from the field a bit. Um, so that was the uh, the choice of Miller. And then we talk about stacks where you get several hitters from the same team. In order to, this only has 90 people in this tournament. So I didn't really want to load up on one team uh, and have that team go off. That's more of a strategy if you're trying to beat hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people. Trying to beat 90 people, what I opted to do was two mini stacks where I take two players from the same team. Uh, I remember one of them was Dustin Bajaria and Mookie Betts. Uh, off the top of my head, I don't recall the other two, but I went with two mini stacks as opposed to, you know, four players against the worst pitcher and, uh, seemed to work out well. You mentioned that you grabbed Mookie Betts. I, uh, I seem to recall that he hit two home runs for you. Yeah. Now here's, here's where the luck comes in. You know, I'll, I'll cop to this. You know, it, it, every, you know, I don't know if it's better to be lucky than good, but it certainly helps to be a little bit of both. I picked up Mookie Betts that night because he was going against Rene Rivera, who was one of the worst catchers in the league at throwing runners out. I actually picked up Dustin Brejoya for that same reason, looking, hoping to get, you know, a couple of, uh, you know, a couple of steals combined, you know, get on base a couple times, a couple of steals, and try to get my points elsewhere. Well, as, you know, as, as good luck would have it, Mookie, Mookie bets two, Tampa Bay nothing. This is the night that he hit two over the wall. So I didn't get my steal from the guy, but I did get two home runs, and that was, you know, basically the difference. Uh, between winning and losing that, that night was, was Mookie Betts, you know, knocking a couple out of the yard. And we have talked about in the past how, and you mentioned it, that when you take a look at the Tout Daily and, and some other, uh, FanDuel contests, the winner usually will have an out of the blue two home run guy. Yep. And, you know, can you predict it? Heck no. But, you know, like I said, you know, I, it was a sound move putting Betts into my lineup because he runs, he's a leadoff hitter, you know, I did, you know, I did not know the guy was going to put two over the monster. That's what a lot of people like about daily fantasy baseball is that it's a a short run thing, which introduces a lot more unpredictability, a lot more unprojectability. And sometimes you make a a good decision and it comes out even better than you think. Yeah. Now the irony of this was, I I now I'm looking at my lineup. My other mini stack was Evan Gaddis and George Springer. And they ended up, uh, one of them neg- negative points. Springer actually had negative points because FanDuel penalizes you for an out. Uh, and, and 
actually so did Geddes. Evan Geddes, they both got me negative points. You know, how can you win a, a tournament when you have negative points? Well, you got Freddie Freeman, who had a home run that night, too. He was actually you know, in the Atlanta right. game, uh, hit a home run in that game. And Matt Carpenter uh, hit a home run. You know, you don't pick up Matt Carpenter for a home run. You pick him up to get on base a few times, knock a couple guys in. Um, you know, the, the term that we use in the, in, in DFS is sweat. You know, when you're, when you're close at the end, you know, you, you have to sweat it out. I had Eric Ibar going and the closest other competitors had Justin Upton and Matt Kemp. And if either of them had done anything decent, I would have been, you know, flip-flopped in the standings. And it turned out that of the three players, Ibar went up there and got a, you know, a, a two-run single in the eighth inning and, and Kemp and, and Upton were made to look foolish by the, uh, I, the Giants relief core. So that it kind of, you know, the, the, it was, you know, that's just the way it goes sometimes. You know, I'll put my money on Justin Upton, not Eric Ibar. But on this particular night, Eric Ibar came through and, and Justin Upton saw strike three. Yeah. And a lot, uh, often, of course, it also works the other way. I was in the tout uh, contest and I had most of my games were on the West Coast and my few guys that were on East Coast starts had put me in fifth place against a lot of guys who had very few innings left. And I thought, well, when we get out West, I'm really going to make hay. I had uh, Albert Pujols, Mike Trout, uh, you know, got all kinds of really great players out on the West Coast, and they went for a combined, like, one for 17 or something like that. And those negative points really add up. So uh, uh, as as we always say, it's a, it's a much shorter-term game. You can't be as solid in your expectations and that's the way the game works uh, speaking of the daily games todd you had some other columns about it uh, and I, I liked uh, all of them and the first i'd like to ask you about was points per batting order slot and when i saw the headline i thought well it's going to be three first four second uh and like that and uh, the results were not as pronounced as one might expect yeah this is something that is you know is pretty important when you're depending upon how you go about making out your lineup, do you actually use, you know, projections or do you just sort of take a look when the lineup's announced and then you then for, you know, see where he's hitting and and at least having this information is sort of in the back of your mind, it gives you, you know, guys hitting second, what does that mean? Now, of course, it depends on the player. You know, Mike Trout hitting second versus Andrelton Simmons hitting second is a, you know, it's, it's, it's huge. It's a difference of the player. Uh, but it, it does sort of give it a pretty decent idea of what one might expect and, you know, how far down in the batting order do you want to go before your, you know, the, the points you get, no matter how low the salary is, it just might not be worth it. You know, value is one thing. But you still need points, you know. In standard rotisserie, you could, you know, draft. You could in an auction, you know, you could get, you know, fourteen, fifteen dollar players, uh, you know, that were supposed to be, you know, twenty, but you still don't have as much value as somebody who, you know, got a few less bargains but spent their entire budget. So that's sort of the idea. It's a similar analogy in in, in, in DFS where it's not all bang for the buck. You want some value plays. Then you just want to get some players that are just going to pound up the points and you don't care about their salary. And that's where you care about in the batting order because the higher up in the batting order, the more likely that extra plate appearance is going to give you that extra opportunity to, to knock in a run or score or whatever. So did number three turn out, in fact, to be the best slot? Number three, in fact, turned out to be the best slot. Now, this, Yay for me. I mean, we're talking about the margins here. This is more... 
you know, curious, not so much curiosity, but it's, it's interesting. Which do you think was higher, the American League number three or the National League number three? I'm going to guess the National League number three. Right. Uh, that's, that's, yeah. And I, 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 I think a lot of people would say the American League because more runs are scored, but whether, you know, what I, looking at the data, and I don't know how it's not so much that interest, you know, again, it's a player thing, but it's more we're baseball fans too. I, uh, in the National League, I think every single team puts their best hitter at number three. I think in the American League, there's some best hitter, you know, clean up in number, they get spread between three and four. So the best hitter's focused at, at number, at number three in the National League. And, uh, where does the fall off really start? The fall off starts at number six in the order. And it's not so much that the, it's not so much that the, that the slope of the, dec- the decline is, is any greater than between other adjacent places. It's just that, uh, you know, three is the highest, then two and four, are kind of comparable. It depends upon your site as to uh, which might be better per site. And again, it has to do with the players too. And then one and five, the expectations for the first spot in the order and the fifth spot in the order are pretty similar. So if you know, if you if you look at it like that, it's sort of the top three. Three's by itself. Two and four takes the second spot, and then one and five take the third spot. Well, number six is kind of all by itself. So at that point. Uh, at least to me, it seems to be a reasonable place to to cut it off because there'll be plenty of players in the first five spots of a batting order, so that you usually be able to you know choose somebody for your for your DFS team. You know you don't you know if you don't eliminate spot number five because it's gets you get the same amount of points as spot number two. So if you eliminate five, you might as well eliminate two, and now you're down to three spots, and you might not be able to find enough players. Right. So it's kind of I don't know if, what the exact reasoning might be, but it's because you know six is flying solo. There's no other spot in the order that's similar. So I try to stick to the top five, unless the matchup is just so great, and this is more of a tournament play where you're looking for you know literally and fi- literally and figuratively a home run or two. If I feel that the a six or seven spot yeah, if whatever reason is just you know, if Garrett Jones is hitting sixth or seventh for the Yankees against a weak pitcher, I might put him in there because you know that left field, the right field porch in Yankee Stadium, he can hit a home run. So it, it takes an extreme situation. Other you know, cash games, I'm sticking with top five. In a situation where you wanted to build a full stack, uh, a four-person stack, uh, sometimes it seems you might kind of almost feel forced to include the six hitter, especially if he matched up reasonably well, because you can't afford two, three, four, five because of salaries. Yep, that's correct. Um, now, I don't know how, which might preclude you from doing a, a full-on four-player stack. Uh, now, we mentioned number three is the best. I think one of the interesting repercussions of this data is if you're going to build a stack, try to get that number three guy in there, especially because the next two guys are two and four. Uh, I mentioned mini stack before, so if I look for a mini stack, I'm looking for two and three or three and four, depending on the cost. You know, everything does de- does does revolve around right. the cost. Um, just because you get the, that number three guy in there is is likely to score, you know, the most points of the group, and then you know, two, nicely two and four are the second and third highest. Um, I mean, we talk about stack. To me, the, the players really knew need to be adjacent to each other because you want them to feed off each other. You want both of them to get points on the same event. One guy knocks the other in, or you know, one guy scores. You know, when the other guy gets a hit, etc. Um, 
if you're just taking two players in the same team and they're not next to each other in the batting order and one one's performance doesn't directly influence the others, all you're doing is taking two players that are both, you know, facing a, a lesser pitcher or have a good park or something like that. You're really not making a stack. To me, a stack, there has to be some sort of uh, double dipping where two or three of the players on the same event get fantasy points. Well, what about a situation, Todd, like uh, the leadoff hitter and the number three hitter? They're not adjacent, strictly speaking, but if the first guy reaches and the third guy somehow drives in a run, we can know that the run that he drives in is going to be that number one guy. And the number one, if the number three guy drives in any run, there's a 50-50 chance it's going to be the first guy, right? Because there's the only two guys in front of him until the later innings roll around. Sure. The, 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 the closer you are in the order, there's more of a chance. And you know, I, I say I want him adjacent. I mean, like you just said, who's to say that the who's to say that leadoff hitter didn't get on? The second guy didn't bunt him over, and then and the third guy knocked him home, and I had the second guy and got no credit for the right. bunt. Uh, you know, that very well could happen. Um, usually in a stack, though, you're not looking for a bunt; you're looking for a home run. <laughs> uh, so I think overall, more often than not, you want to have the guys that are next to each other if they're one away in the top four places it's not horrible um i just i guess i prefer having them you know next to each other just to increase just a little bit because you know if they're next to each other you know maybe the fifth guy knocks them both in and and uh you know i i didn't get the points for the fifth guy but maybe i get points for the second and third you also tried to quantify home field advantage in another column about daily games uh first of all is there a, a home field advantage in the daily game and second of all if there is how pronounced is it yeah well let's give credit to credit where to, to where it's due especially because it's a friend of ours a friend of the show and that's gene mccaffrey who for a long time has talked about the home field advantage for the cdm game uh where you get to change your lineups weekly and have a nice reserve list and putting players that are at home uh the, the their skills of a player at home are, are high higher now the flip side to this is that on the road, win or lose, you're guaranteed nine innings. You're guaranteed, uh, you know, your full complement. You know, at home, if you're winning, you don't get up in the ninth. You know, same with extra innings. You're always guaranteed that extra inning. So you actually get more opportunities on the road than you do at home. So you, it's a balance between you play better at home versus you get more opportunities on the road. Now there is there skills wise there's no doubt a player is more skilled at home. However, the, the 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 counter because they get more opportunities on the road, it squishes the uh you know the 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 impact of the home field advantage. So you 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 do actually you, you still score uh more on the road uh, at home, but it, the difference might not be as great as you might think. And again, it's it, it, here too it's a batting order thing where if I am going to look for the seventh hitter in a stack, I just use Garrett Jones at home. But I, I know I, maybe there's a I, I'm more, the seventh hitter on the road is more likely to get up mm -hmm. that extra at bat. So I might be more inclined if I do need to stretch and the salary is so good to use a sixth or seventh or eighth hitter. Well, not so much eighth, sixth or seventh hitter in an away game because there's a better chance that he gets that last opportunity. And finally, Todd, you also discussed a technique for converting player-projected stats into points per game. Uh, how does that work? Well, here, yeah, I mentioned before, 
depending upon how you go about setting your your, your lineups, uh, you know, do you just take a look at the lineups and kind of intuitively, you know, this, you know, I know what Troy Tulowitzki is as a player, and he's he's at home versus a lefty, and this is the salary. What I actually do is I start with their baseline, my my projection, what I feel that they're going to do, and I then take that projection i neutralize it to park neutral and then i go through a series of steps where i uh alter the expectation based upon the matchup that day and you know what we're talking about here home field and and everything else i'm, I'm beginning on the series on fitness alarm beginning to show the individual nuances the individual tweaks i make to the baseline projection so the first one was home away so what i'll what i'll do is I'll take the baseline expectation. I'll, I'll bring it down to park neutral. Uh, if it, if the player is at home, I increase the skills, uh, but I'll also decrease the expected plate appearances, and vice versa. If the player is away, I'll decrease the skills, but I'll increase the plate appearances. And I, I have certain algorithms based upon history. How much do I, you know, how much more likely is a player to get a hit, a home run, a double, a triple? So I'll I'll do that to each individual statistic. Um, I'm not, you know, I'll then go and I'll, I'll add in, you know, handedness and I'll add in, uh, the actual park effect because I did make it park neutral and I'll add in the quality of opponent. All these, we'll, we'll probably talk about these in future, in future sessions where each week and I go through the different tweaks, but I'll actually do that. And then I'll actually, you know, project plate appearances via the, the spot in the lineup. And I distill everything down to per plate appearances once I know where they're hitting. I multiply it by the expected paid appearances and can literally come up with uh, a projection for how many FanDuel points I think this guy is going to score. You know, I'm going to do my tout, tout daily lineup tonight. I'm going to have a, you know, I know how many points he's, I project. I know what the, the salary is. I can then get a feel for, you know, his bang for the buck. What, you know, it's a way to take the points and related to the salary and figure out where the, I hate the word value, but where the best value, where the best potential is. Uh, so it's, it's not a be all end all. I don't take the, the 10 best or nine best potentials and throw them on my lineup. It's a little bit deeper than that, but it, it gives a, it gives a, a data point at least to, to begin to, to start with. It's all uh, very interesting. It's certainly providing rich fields for research and, uh, some really interesting results. The daily fantasy game, uh, I hope that in the future we're going to be able to figure out ways that uh, what we're learning about daily fantasy can also be applied in uh, in the full season games and vice versa and, uh, and other formats. But in the meantime, it's sure fun to talk about and sure fun to think about. Todd, thanks for thinking about it. Thanks for talking about it. And we'll talk to you again next week. All right, and I uh, hope to see you on the uh, leaderboard for Tout Daily tonight. Well, I hope I'll be there too, but it's, uh, it's a tough, <laughs> tough competition. Uh, thanks again, Todd. All right, we'll talk to you next week. Todd Zola writes for BaseballHQ.com, for Ron Chandler, ChandlerPark.com, ESPN, Fantasy Alarm, The Mothership is MastersBall.com, and as I say every week, wherever Todd's writing, you should be reading. When we come back, we'll have our Baseball HQ commentaries. It's the matchups and master notes next on Baseball HQ Radio. Let me say something about greenies. First of all, greenies were not performance enhancers. At the best, they allowed a guy with a hangover or somebody who didn't get any sleep that night to be more alert, and he was able to play up to his normal ability. So they were performance enablers. They were not performance enhancers. They did not, they did not make him a better player than he ordinarily would. That's the difference between amphetamines 
and these uh, uh, human growth hormones and, and steroids. I'm, 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 not, I'm not saying that's okay. I, I think there should be a ban on amphetamines too because they're not healthy, but they have to be put into a different category uh, you know, than, than the uh, human growth hormones. They're, they're probably something a little bit better than a cup of coffee in terms of the stimulation that you get. So I think you, you need to, the, the baseball needs to make a distinction there. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. It's time now for our regular Friday commentaries. I'm on deck with Master Notes, and now it's our pitcher matchup report. BaseballHQ.com has developed algorithms to determine the strength or weakness of every starting pitcher matchup based on opponent, park, handedness, and other factors. Pitchers score from minus 5 to plus 5. We recommend pitchers with a matchup rating of plus 2 and higher, and we suggest you avoid pitchers with matchup ratings below 0. Everything in between is a cost-benefit risk analysis. Here with some of this weekend's matchups is BaseballHQ.com analyst Greg Fishwick. We are one month into the 2015 season, and though our small sample size warning is still in effect, we are beginning to see some patterns emerging on the BaseballHQ.com Pitcher Matchups tool. Let's look at the matchups between extreme highs and lows this weekend. The largest matchup differential for Saturday, which is the difference between the two pitchers' matchup ratings, is 347, and it's in the lone interleague game on the schedule between the Cincinnati Reds and the Chicago White Sox, at the Southside's hitter-friendly U.S. Cellular Field. White Sox rookie Carlos Rodon is a poster child for our small sample size warning. The highly touted third pick in the 2014 amateur draft has hurled all of six and one-third innings over three relief appearances in the show. He struck out four, walked four, and allowed nine hits for a whip of 204 and expected ERA of six. He's at home for his first major league start and he has a matchup rating of minus 125. We can admire his potential, but we just don't know enough about his performance yet to project his results. The Reds counter with Johnny Cueto and his matchup rating of 222. Cueto's track record contrasts sharply with Rodon's. Cueto has a PQS Dom start in four of his five outings in 2015, and in 2014 he had 22 PQS dominant starts out of 34 with no PQS disasters in either season. The Sox have scored only about three and a half runs per game in 2015, fewest in the American League, while allowing nearly five. The Reds are 10th in the National League scoring, about four runs per game, which is all they allow as well. One twist in this contest is the strong home record for Chicago so far at 8-3. and three. Everything else favors Cincinnati. There is one other matchup differential above three on Saturday, and it's a 308 in the American League tilt between Texas and Tampa in Tampa's pitcher-friendly Tropicana Field. The Rangers' Ross Detweiler has a matchup rating of minus 108 and owns a PQS log of 0, 0, 0, 4, 5. In 25 innings, he's walked 11 and struck out 17, costing his fantasy owners minus $15 in roto value. Tampa's Jake Odorizzi has a matchup rating of 2-0 and a PQS log of 5-3-5-3-3-5. In 40 and two-thirds innings, he's posted a whip of 089 and an earned run average of 221. He has an expected ERA of 350 because of his fortunate 25% hit rate, but he's walked only 8 and struck out 32 for a fine command ratio 
of 4.0, and he's earned his fantasy owners $23 in roto value. Texas scores four runs per game, but allows four and a half. The Rays score and allow about three and a half runs per game. Odorizzi should prevail in the trot. There are three matchup differentials over three on Sunday, and two are in the American League. The worst is a matchup differential of 7-17 between the Twins' Trevor May with his minus 360 and the Indians' Danny Salazar with his 357. Minnesota visits Cleveland in pitcher-friendly progressive field where the Tribe has a record identical to the Twins' road record. Both are 4-8. Despite the stigma of his weekend-worst matchup rating, May stood out in a review of April performance by BaseballHQ.com starting pitcher's buyer's guide analyst Stephen Nickrand. Quote, his base skills were very strong, and he remains a young pitcher worthy of an investment, unquote. But even with a base performance value of 96, May's biggest problem in this matchup is Salazar. His base performance value is an incredible 206. The only flaw in his profile is a 50% first pitch strike rate. Still, in 26 innings, he's walked only 5 and struck out 37. His whip is 108, and his expected ERA is 223. Salazar has started the season with four straight PQS fives, and May just happens to be in his way on this Sunday in May. The lone matchup differential over three in the National League on Sunday is in Philadelphia, where the Phillies are 29th in winning percentage at 10 and 19, and 30th in run differential at minus two. The visiting New York Mets have the second best record at 18 and 10, and the fifth best run differential at nearly one. The New Yorkers score almost four runs per game and allow just over three. The opponent-friendly Phillies score fewer than three runs per game and allow nearly five. The matchup differential is 386, composed of Dylan G's 230 for the Mets and Chad Billingsley's minus 156 for the Phils. Billingsley is another poster child for our small sample size warning. He hadn't pitched in a major league game for two years when he made his first start this season on Cinco de Mayo. Appropriately, he went five innings and allowed five earned runs on two home runs with a walk and two strikeouts. In his five 2015 starts, Dylan G has averaged a middling PQS 2.8. But Stephen Nickran's April analysis in his BaseballHQ.com Starting Pitchers Buyer's Guide also noted that G led all starting pitchers with 74% of his pitches going for strikes. And Nick Rand wrote, quote, his base skills were actually really good and featured plenty of command and ground balls, unquote. So go with G this Sunday. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly commentary on baseball and fantasy baseball. I'm up in the rotation this week, and I want to talk about what's in a month. April was National Stress Awareness Month in the U.S., and that might apply double to fantasy baseball players. After all, after a month is in the books, we know how our players are doing, and we have to start making roster decisions. Or maybe not. For all of 2013, Adrian Beltre had an OPS of 880. In April of the next season, 2014, Adrian Beltre had an OPS of just 686, a mark matched the previous season by the likes of Eric Sogard, Eric Ibar, and a bunch of other mid-to-late-round players who didn't happen to be named Eric. Beltre's cold start last April 
was a 194-point decline from the previous full season, down 22%. League message boards and expert chatter sites were abuzz with analysis of Beltre's slow start and its potential to be a harbinger of the rest of the 2014 campaign. Buy low, some of them said. He's sure to rebound. Sell low, said others. It's the beginning of the end for Adrian Beltre. But here's the thing. A single month is a very shaky foundation for broad analysis. A month matters in many aspects of our real lives, such as remembering which month includes your wife's birthday, usually a few weeks after you forgot about it. But for assessing baseball performance, it's just an arbitrary set of start and end points. July, for example, is just a set of 31 days that somebody wanted to name after Julius Caesar. They decided not to give him what we call March because that's named after the war god Mars. And besides, Caesar had a terrible march, especially in 44 BCE. Curiously, nobody quite knows for sure after what or after whom April is named. We do know that it is National Stress Month, and we know April is also National Poetry Month in the U.S., this strikes me as odd because nothing rhymes with April. Other cultures have completely different names for their months, and you never hear of a fantasy tout telling you to dump a player because he had a terrible Nissan. But no matter what you call it, 30 days is 30 days. There's nothing intrinsically different about the 30 days from April 1st to April 30th when compared to the 30 days from, say, August 9th to September 8th. Your thighs will chafe more in August. You wouldn't base a roster decision on a player's performance from August 9th to September 8th. Hell, you probably wouldn't even know how any of your players performed from August 9th to September 8th because nobody reports performance that way. And so we don't think about it that way either. So why would anyone base a decision on how a player was playing from April 1st to 30th? The baseball HQ mantra, and by now you may be tired of hearing about it, is to exercise excruciating patience. That mantra tells us we can afford to wait on established batters who happen to start the year slowly and to avoid getting overly excited when a batter gets hot. Most of the time, the mantra says, things will even out. And as mantras go, this is actually a pretty good one for most things in life. Certainly looking at 2014 seems to bear out the mantra's position. Overall, hitters with OPSs above 700 in 2013 and more than 300 plate appearances in 2014 exercised excruciating inertia, along with a tendency to feel the effects of gravity. So we can clearly see that Sir Isaac Newton would have been a hell of a fantasy baseball player. There were 143 such batters in 2014. 60% of them saw their OPS stay relatively stable, rising or falling less than 10% from 2013 levels. Another 31% fell more than 10% from the previous season, and only 9% saw their OPSs rise more than 10%. There's no indication that an anomalous April signified anything for the balance of the year. Among batters whose April 2014 OPS was down 10% or more, 77% of them saw their OPS from May to September revert right back to within 10% of 2013 levels. Among batters whose April was up 10% or more, only 8% also saw a 10% increase in their May to September. 16% saw a decrease of more than 10%, and once again, 78% stayed pretty much where they were. Nor was there any pattern within the season that reflected first-month performance. Most batters bounced around in a relatively narrow range near their previous year OPS. Some built up slowly, some declined slowly. 
Some bounced around like a two-year-old on Red Bull. Yaziel Puig's monthly OPS marks were 9.25 in April, 12.23 in May, and just as everybody got excited, 6.57 in June. Oh no, then 11.13 in July. Yay! 5.43 in August. Oh no, and 8.08 in September. All of it adding up to an OPS of 8.62 for the season, about 7% down from 2013. Nelson Cruz had an OPS of 11.36 in May and a 9.88 in September, but was under 600 in two of the other three months. Logan Morrison had a catastrophic 3.77 in April, I remember this well as he was on one of my teams at the time, and a 4.83 OPS in July, but in June 8.06, in September 10.43. That was after I waived him, of course. Beltre went on to have an 862 OPS in May, a 1013 in June, an 879 in July, an 851 in August, and an 891 in September and October. And when 2014 was over, Adrian Beltre had an OPS of 880, exactly the same as the year before. There are literally scores of other examples and scores of other patterns. The point is, April is not all that significant. Beyond the aforementioned National Stress Month, the occasional religious celebration, and of course your wife's birthday. April, remember, is also National Poetry Month, so we close this edition of Master Notes with the most delightful of poetic forms, the limerick. A thirty-buck slugger one year caused his owners in April to fear. Is he starting to fade? Should I seek out a trade? Just relax, for the rebound is near. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt of BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, May the 8th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 24 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our regular guest for this Friday edition of our show, Todd Zola. Always a pleasure to talk with Todd. And I want to thank our other contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our pitcher matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt. A pleasure to do Master Notes this week. Ray Murphy will be back next week. In the meantime, I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, you can check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt and be the first to know when a new edition of Baseball HQ Radio is ready to go. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Tuesday when our expert guest will be Yahoo Sports fantasy writer Scott Pianowski. That's the next edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.